So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. All right. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. I'm really excited about today's interview. Tim Bratz is going to just share an absolute wealth of knowledge with us today on scaling real estate and with an emphasis in multifamily. This is going to be a great, just a great podcast for all of you looking to get into real estate, wanting to go out there, build an empire and make it big. This is the one for you. So Tim, thanks so much for coming on. I'm very appreciative to steal some of your time. AJ, appreciate you having me, buddy. I, and I appreciate all the value you put out there, man. So you're making a, a big impact on a lot of people's lives. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. We were talking a little before the podcast, and I kind of want you to share with me what you were talking to me before and how you got into this, because you kind of started on one side of the real estate game and moved into the other and figured out, I think, what a lot of people don't. And that's how to scale this stuff, how to, how to make it big. So maybe give a little of your backstory and kind of talk about that transition. I think we all get involved in real estate because of that allure of passive income, right? That residual income, that mailbox money, doing something once and then getting paid on it over and over and over again, going sitting on a beach someplace, right? That's what that's what really gets us salivating over real estate. And then a lot of us get stuck in the in the transactional side of things. We think that we need to go out and stockpile a bunch of our own cash in order to go and, and buy those passive income producing assets. And the reality is it's not not the case. And so, man, I, I went down the, the path just like everybody else, uh, like a lot of other people do, right? And so I worked for a home builder and, when I was in college and I saw real estate then. And I'm going through college in 03 to 07, markets going gangbusters. If you could fog a mirror, you could make money in, in real estate, right? And so I, I ended up, I'm from Cleveland originally, moved out to New York City. My brother was living out there and um, became a real estate agent. I thought that's how you got involved in real estate. So I started brokering commercial property or commercial rentals, uh, retail space, office space. And I either represent the landlord trying to re lease out that space, or I represent a business owner looking to expand or grow their business. And so my first deal took me eight, nine months to close. And it was only 400 square feet. And, but I signed a lease. This is in Manhattan, right? So I signed a lease for $10,000 a month on that deal. And I'm like, you start doing the math on that over 12 year lease term with a 4% annual increase, you're talking about, it was like $1.85 million over the course of 12 years that this landlord was going to make for doing something one time. And I remember thinking like, I'm on the wrong side of the coin, right? I need to be owning real estate instead of brokering real estate. Did you go to college for that? Because you'd mentioned you were in college. Were you going on finance, no, anything like a, that? I was a marketing major, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So general business with the, with the, so you really learn marketing. I, dude, I thought I was going to go and work for like Procter and Gamble or something. Yeah. Be some brand marketing manager, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but then the real estate bug kind of caught on because everybody's making money in real estate. And I thought, Hey, I'll try out this real estate thing. My brother said, Hey, come out, live with me for free in New York city. And I'm 22. He's 27 at the time. Like, let's go and hang out and live a little little bit of bachelor lifestyle, right? So I thought, oh, okay, that'd be fun. I don't know when I'm going to be able to do that again. So let's go do it. And I ended up going out there and uh, it was either something in real estate. So I interviewed with a mortgage brokerage and I interviewed with uh, this uh, commercial real estate brokerage. And the mortgage brokerage was in New Jersey and then the other one was in Manhattan. So I decided to go with that one. So I, I, I don't know, man. Like, I think there's a lot of like these little pivots in your yeah. life, I guess, that happen that yeah. make big impacts, I guess, Absolutely. over time, right? Especially too, we, we had a podcast, we were talking about this the other day that, you know, 
I, I think people underestimate the impact of pivots early on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you're in your early 20s, one pivot over a 20-year period of time is massive. And it compounds and, and big time, exactly. right? Exactly. It seems like later on in life, you have to make big pivots to make a difference. But early yeah. on, small ones, they, they make huge, have huge ripple effect. Yeah, and it's it's kind of crazy. Like looking back, like there's a couple of things in my life that were like, yeah, that that opportunity that that popped open, or that deal that I bought or I shouldn't have bought, or, or you know, things like that. Periods of reflection or going out to a mastermind, like things like that, that really I I could say distinctly made a big impact. There's a lot of these little things that add up, like you were saying, and all of a sudden create big impact over time too. So, anyways, I, I end up saying, Hey, I need to go invest in real estate. I can't afford anything. I'm 22 years old in New York city. So I end up moving to Charleston, South Carolina, just for better weather and on, on a whim. And so I moved down there and go through the whole analysis paralysis phase that everybody goes through probably in, in real estate, realize I'm only going to learn how to swim by jumping in the water. And so I decided I need to go and buy something and uh, bought my first place on my credit card, a uh, small little crappy duplex that I bought for $14,000 all in for around 19, 20 grand, sold it for 34 grand. And I was like, ah, this is unbelievable. Yeah. So, and this is in 2009 now. So I'm 23 years old, 2009 yeah. market just fell apart. First deal I've ever done in the worst housing recession in the history of the country. And I'm making money. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm invincible. And so I go and do it again, do it again, do it again. So get into wholesaling, meet some people with money who maybe didn't have the bandwidth or the, the expertise to, uh, to do the work. And now, how, how did you meet private money? money? You, you'd mentioned, masterminds is that how you were really doing your connecting or how did how do you meet these individuals that had capital to spare and not the bandwidth or the wanting to do the legwork yeah so 09 2010 i didn't know anybody right that was uh, uh all my buddies were just getting drunk every single weekend they were blowing every 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 dollar that came in at the bars so i didn't have any friends with money I didn't have any access to capital. My brother actually was one of my first private money lenders. He loaned me a, a little bit of cash. And then I just found cheap houses. And so uh, there was a guy that I that I knew who worked at a car dealership and he had access to a $100,000 line of credit. And he's like, let's go buy some stuff. And we decided, hey, we'll split it 50-50. He put up the money. I did the work. And uh, we bought a package of, of a few houses on the same street. And over the course of like 12 months, I stabilized it, refinanced them back out, gave them a big chunk of money. And um, then I kept those properties. And over the course of, you know, so I'm 25 years old at the time, you know, I had 10 units total and it was nine properties, 10 total units, and I'm financially free. The cash flow and the money that came in covered all my operating expenses for the properties, all my debt service, and put $3,000 a month in cash flow, which my living expenses yeah. were only about two grand a month. So I'm yeah. like, I'm financially free at 25 years old. I wasn't rich, yeah. but I was free. And I'm like, this is amazing. And then I went down a path of trying out different other businesses, lost everything or lost all my money, yeah. right? Was was cash poor, 25 grand in credit card debt, 80 bucks in my bank account, yeah. borrowing money to make what, the minimum. What'd you go try to do? Uh, network marketing. Network marketing. So I went down that, that road, made a lot of sense, met a lot of great people, uh, met a lot of private money people, actually. So I decided to leave that after two years. And one of the senior vice presidents in that company reached out to me and like, we got into this, so that way we can get into real estate and uh, we want to invest with you. And so they reached out, to me. they saw my work ethic, they saw what I've 
was able to do in, in that business, even though I didn't make any money, I was in the top like 1% of performers, right? Wow. Which tells you a couple of things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I was about to say that's a good lesson to learn. <laughs> but I realized I had other, other skill sets. So I get yeah. out of that. They approach me. They put up a few hundred thousand dollars, turn that into, well, they invested a few more bucks over the course of about 12, 15 months. And we're in for around a million bucks, a little over a million bucks, maybe. And it turned into about three and a half million dollars, right? And this is 2014 ish, 2012 to, or end of 2012 to 2014. And so today those values are probably two to three times that. So it would have been worth 10 million bucks, you know, today, but, uh, uh, you know, go through that whole process and, and people see you doing deals. They see that you can find a wholesale price project and there's just people out there. If you educate them, it's not a sales thing. Yeah, it's just yeah. educating people that you bring on private money. It's educating people that here's how I structure it. It's educating people on all that stuff. So, I'll dive into how I raise private money a little bit in a, in a, in a moment, okay. but I want to finish kind of my story for yeah, you yeah, so you absolutely. understand the full circle. Uh, that partnership goes south. We ended up liquidating about 140 units, apartment units that we had. And Why did it uh, go south? How to go south? Yeah, like what happened? It's one of those things where expectations were not clear. You know, early on, everybody has these different expectations. And then, you know, I'm sure they have their own story. I have my own story, but there's yeah. a lot of different moving parts and moving pieces. And, um, uh, it got a little bit ugly and it, we just decided, Hey, the only people going to get rich in this thing are going to be the attorneys and let's just sit down and let's just figure out a way to hash everything out and liquidate everything. And so that's what we ended up doing. So okay. it was one of those things where it was like my whole portfolio, all my net worth was in this, in this portfolio properties. Yeah. And it's like a massive setback for me to have to liquidate everything. But the reality is, man, it was a big set up right? Yeah. It actually opened me up for so much more because there were so many people who wanted to do business with me because I had a, an exclusive relationship with those guys. I couldn't. Yeah. And so I was able to develop some other relationships. People then brought other private money. I joined a mastermind, met other people with money. And again, just educating people on, on what we do. So started a turnkey business, property management company, all this different stuff. Looked at my portfolio, started buying apartment buildings again. Looked at my portfolio about two and a half years ago, realized 90% of my net worth comes from apartments. And it was 10% of my time. And I was like, done, right? So yeah. that's one of those big moments in my yeah. life where I'm like, I'm burning the ships on everything else. I'm doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on apartments. And that's that's what I've done. So over the past four years, I've been building my current portfolio since liquidating with those guys. So I started from scratch in August of 2015. And then, uh, you know, four, four and a half years, I'm at, I have a little over 3,200 units right now, apartments. Um, I have another 600 that I'm closing on, closing on my first self-storage facilities. Two nice. Of them, right one in on. Florida, one in North Carolina. Right on. Smoking deals. I, I wouldn't even get outside of my asset class unless yeah. I knew it was a smoking deal awesome. uh, or unless I partnered up with somebody like you who knew yeah. what they were doing and I could just bring capital yeah. to like your- That's how we are with like apartments. We're like, if we're going outside, we're partnering up unless it's just a you know, same thing, screaming deal because yeah. expertise. Yeah, dude, because you get your ass handed to you, man. Absolutely. Like, it, 100%. People don't realize it. Every asset class is its own business. Yeah. Every time I get into a different asset class, yep. I lose time. I lose money. Yep. hundred um, percent. So, you know, from a, from a standpoint, I'm partnered up with two great partners on those projects. And I'm pretty excited for it, but I mean, our portfolios will be, or by the end of this year, it'll be 300, a little over $300 million portfolio value. And our goals hit a billion in the next 24 months. So it's awesome. We're pretty ambitious. Yeah. And um, we're very confident we can do it though. That's great. Now, where are you? Talk to me about your geographic location. Where are you guys spread out through? Was there a plan on that, or were you just going where deals were? 
So I'm a big believer in joint venture partnerships on a okay. deal by deal basis, not necessarily getting married over all, everything. The yes. only person I want to be married to is my wife. That's right. <laughs> That's good but philosophy I love, right there. <laughs> but I love joint venture. I love on a deal yeah. by deal basis. You and I say, hey, let's buy a self-storage facility. Yeah. I'll raise money. I can sponsor loans. You know, you bring the operations, whatever that is. And we figure out a way to carve up the equity, right? Yeah. I love doing that because it gets me into things that I couldn't have gotten into before. Absolutely. It gets the joint venture partner into deals that they couldn't have gotten into before. It gets the investors into deals that they wouldn't have had access to. Yeah. And it, it really is a win-win for everybody. And it's a one plus one equals three, yeah. you know, because I can focus on what I'm good at. You can focus on what you're good at. And all of a sudden, because I'm good at it, I like it. So I'm happier. Mm -hmm which makes me even better at my job because I'm more passionate about it, right? And now I can go focus on raising more money. You focus on more operations and somebody else focuses on asset management or whatever. Yeah. And so that's what I've really been able to do. I'd rather have a quarter of a watermelon than 100% of a grape. Yeah. If you know what I mean? There's Absolutely. a lot more juice in the squeeze yep. of a quarter of a watermelon that's this big yep. versus 100% of a grape. And so that's my entire philosophy in building my portfolio. Now, my, I don't traditionally syndicate like, like a lot of people do. My strategy is a little bit different. Okay. I look for heavy value ads and I'm all in for 65% of the stabilized value. So I'm either building new construction or I'm repositioning uh, pretty distressed assets. Okay. And, uh, you know, on a building that I'm all into for six and a half million bucks is now worth 10 and a half or 10 million bucks. I go and get a 75% LTV loan. So I'll get a 7.5 million dollar loan. I pay off the construction financing. I pay off my equity investors in full. So I don't have any other equity investors involved in the deal anymore. No more cash in the deal. It's just um, you. It's just house money in play. I guess is what I was yep. going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. just non-recourse, long-term debt, Fannie, Freddie, agency debt, whatever it is. So for me, it's very predictable for me of how long that money, the investor's money is going to be in play. So I've created kind of like a little bit of a hybrid of how I pay my investors. I pay them a fixed return, a fixed pref while the money's invested, regardless of the property's performance. Cause it's just, it's a predictable expense of the deal for yeah. me. Um, it's like the roof, right? It's like the yeah. parking lot. It's like the whatever. So I know that the debt service is going to cost me $300,000 if I'm going to raise 3 million bucks over the course of a year. Then if I can refinance it in 12, 18 months, I pay them off. They get all their money back and then they still maintain equity in perpetuity. So they keep 20% okay. on average okay. in my deals forever. So now they're excited because they have more velocity on their capital than in a traditional syndication where their yeah. money's parked for five or 10 years. Two, they're making money regardless of the property's performance versus only if it's cash flowing. Three, they still have equity upside, mm -hmm. right? They can, they, yeah, they might have less equity, but guess what? I can get them in three or four different deals over the course of five years versus one traditional yeah. syndication. So now they still have the same equity. And then the other thing is a lot of times in traditional syndication, you got to sell the asset in order to cash out the investors. Yeah. And then you don't do that's just a high paying job. Yeah, you know? exactly. Hey, I'm here to build legacy. Wealth. I want to, mm -hmm. I want to hold these things forever. That's that. how the wealthy get super ultra Love wealthy, that. right? Yeah, absolutely. And so if I can cash them out, then, then my back's not against the wall. I can hold on to these assets for the next 30 years, 50 years if I want to. And you're in control. So, and I'm in hundred percent control, right? Yep. So it's good for the investor. It's good for me. And guess what? Now there's more equity to carve up between me and the JV partners. Yeah. So if 20% is going to them, I might get 30 or 40% 
the JV partner might get 40%. And then all of a sudden it makes more sense because we're doing, we're the ones doing the heavy lifting anyways. Absolutely. um, And creating that appreciation. So I found that, 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 that hybrid of a predictable return on investment along with equity upside is like, dude, it's a secret force for going out and raising money. It is a no brainer for anybody. Anybody who dangles a carrot in front of their face, they're not going to follow that carrot because what you got is better than anything else out there. And I, yeah. and I truly believe commercial real estate, what you're doing, what I'm yep. doing is better than anything else that's out there right now. That model, I mean, you can scale that infinitely. And once again, it's not only is it a win-win situation, but the for the investors, for an average person looking at it, risk is money in the deal most of the time for people because they're exactly. not taking on the debt, things like that. You can... Two years, they have no risk, but they have cash flow. It's infinite upside, and they can rinse and repeat. And to them, that means they have an infinite model too, which that's not how most of those deals work. You're either stuck in it or they sell it, you're out, and now you got their money again, and you're going, well, I got to start this whole thing over again. What am I supposed to do with this? Mm -hmm. Where I can see for on your side of the table, those investors, not only are they going to keep coming back, they're going to tell their friends. Yep. And you're just going to keep uh, that pipeline coming in. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And uh, a little, little, you know, understanding of the psychology behind that is that you can only raise money if you have these two things, trust and respect, right? Like you being on this podcast, you have a lot of respect for your audience and it builds a lot of trust. So I'm sure you raise a lot of money through your podcast, people who listen to you because they, they know you, they trust you and they respect you for what you do um, as an operator and storage, right? So same thing with me on my podcast or in my yeah. coaching events or whatever. So what, what comes in is like, now you have another investor. Let's say you have an investor that's invested in one of your projects and somebody else wants to, like, they know somebody that they have trust with that person, but maybe they don't respect them as an operator of, of self-source facilities, but they respect you. They trust your friend. And all of a sudden it combines the two of them. And now you can go raise money from their friend as well. So that's why referrals work so well in any business, um, and especially in raising private money. Yeah. So if uh, if you can if you can check those two boxes with any investor, you can raise a lot of money. That's just awesome advice. That I love that. Absolutely love that. Now, okay, that's your system. You know where you are, which you've been just tremendously successful. Walk me back through when you're out finding deals. What kind of deals are you looking? You mentioned you build or their rehab. Walk me through that process. Where where do you find the value? Because I know a lot yeah, of people I mean, right now are like, I can't find any. That's because they're all going through brokers, man. And the reality is the brokers know the top 10 buyers in town and they want to earn both sides of the commission. So when they get a listing, they're not going to go and share it with anybody. Yep. They're going to go and shop it to the top 10 people in town, earn both sides of the commission. And that deal never hits the market. 100%. If you see a deal that hits the market, you know it's why? <laughs> it's because everybody said no to it because it's a crap exactly. deal. Exactly. You know? So, so when you go build broker relationships and you don't already have the reputation that, that maybe I have in a certain marketplace, if you're not one of those top 10 buyers, then guess what? You're going to get the scraps. They're going to send you a bunch of crap to see if you're either dumb enough to buy it or sophisticated enough to not buy it. Right. Yeah. So they're going to test you out on some of that stuff and you have to be aware of it. Yeah. Every listing we look at, we look at it before it ever goes to the market. Nobody knows it exists. And after we say yes or no, then it goes to the market and somebody else will buy it. And it's I, we just picked up a deal this month. Massive upside. Great deal in our area or whatnot. No one will ever know that existed until it goes out and sends out and say this property was sold. We've never 
ever once purchased a facility on the market? I mean, now I do because I get the broker relationships, right? Yeah. I mean, or they bring them to me before it technically hits the market. Well, that's what I mean. Exactly. Like yeah, yeah. it'll go to the market and I'm yeah. using air quotations of those people, but really we're the only ones seeing it. Yeah. It's, exactly. it's not out. Nobody knows about it. The broker brings it to us. But you need your, you need your reputation to do that, right? hundred percent. You need your yeah. track record. You 100%. need your balance sheet in order to be able to do that because you've already been. Yeah. So he called me up. He called me up. I was in McCall. On this last deal that we did, he called me up. I had a 10-minute conversation with him, and I said, go tell the owner we're buying it. Never saw it. Nothing. And he knew when I said that, we were going to buy it. And you perform, right? You exactly. You do what you I say do what we're going to say. And that holds a lot of weight. A lot of especially weight. Especially in, in this market, yes. right? There's a lot of people who just go and contract properties, and they have no capability. They're going to try to raise the money, or they're going to try to- Waste uh, everybody's time. Broker's time, that. sellers, everybody's time. They get dragged through the mud. Yeah. Yep. And so if, if you build a reputation of saying, hey, if I tell you I'm going to close, I'm going to close, then you're going to get more and more and more deals. Yeah, so, how did you start doing that? Dude, I found off-market deals. Yeah. You know, the same way I did it when I was flipping houses on the single family side, I did, I, I drive for dollars, right? Yep. Instead of looking for houses with tall grass and boarded up windows, I look for buildings with tall grass and boarded up windows. I dial for dollars. I'd call up for rent signs and say, Hey, I'm not interested in leasing. I'm interested in buying your whole building. Do you have any interest in selling? I would Google search apartment buildings in my local area, look for the worst reviews. And I'd call up the owners yes. and I'd, I'd say, Hey, you're obviously having some issues. All your tenants are pissed and none of them like you. Like, do you want to sell this thing? You go to the building department, look for violations on different properties, and different buildings. They'll gladly give you the owner's contact information because they're tired of the blight in their city. There's a lot of different stuff like that. One of the ways I get a lot of deals is just, I have a network of residential investors and wholesalers and brokers and vendors and all these people on the residential side who come across apartment deals, they just don't know what to do with them. And so they just discard the leads. And I stay top of mind with them through social media, through email drips, through all these different things where I'm like, I'm buying apartments, I'm buying apartments, I'm buying apartments. So as soon as they do come across an apartment, they think, Tim buys apartments. Let's call yeah. Tim. Let me send this over to Tim. I don't know what to do with it. All I need to do is forward an email to Tim and he'll pay me a fee or kick me some equity in the deal. Yes, I will. Right. Yeah. And so now I have this army of people out there looking for deals or paying attention for apartments. And when those deals come across their desk, guess what? They forward them over to my, my acquisitions guy. Okay. He underwrites it and they know that we're good for, for the fee. All right. I got to tell you this story. So I have another podcast that's 100% just self-storage for self-storage nerds. And that one's very, very specific stuff. I, uh, this is the podcast where we talk, get to meet people like you, everything like that. But there was a story that was told on this, and it reminds me exactly of what you're doing. It's kind of a funny story. So they say, you know, think about if you were up in Alaska and you're trying to get salmon to eat to survive, right? You can have this, this spear, you can sharpen a spear, and you can go out there and you're hoping a fish comes by, and then you hope you stab, you hope it doesn't dodge it, and maybe every once in a while you get a fish and you can eat a mill, right? And they had the, the analogy of this was don't be a fisherman, be a bear. The bear walks out into the middle of the river, stands on a waterfall, opens its mouth, and the fish jump into its mouth. He doesn't do anything. He just sits there, and the fish are coming to him constantly. And what you're talking about right there reminds me of the difference between a guy that's looking in the wind river, trying to find a fish to get, trying to get the tools to get it, hoping and praying that one comes by as opposed to somebody that becomes a bear, sits yep. down right on top, opens up his mouth and the fish just jumps straight into his mouth. You know, that reminds me, it reminds me of 
John D. Rockefeller, right? Mm-hmm. Like gamblers drill for oil, businessmen refine oil. And that's why yeah. John D. Rockefeller got it. He wasn't the one out there, you know, trying to dig for gold and dig for oil. Like he was the one that everybody brought the oil to once they went out and found it. And then he was able to then formulate yep. it, paid them for it, all that kind of stuff. Love so it. It, I think it's a business tactic, business strategy. Yep. So it's a way that you can build a big portfolio, man. And yeah. it helps them. You know, it's, it's like, I, I got about a 48 unit apartment building deal. Some, some woman just forwarded me an email about for 1.4 million bucks. And guess what? I sent her a check for 14 grand for forwarding an email. Guess what? Like that changed her life. She was yeah. on a burner phone calling me about it when the yeah. deal was going through, right? And had to go to the library to send the email because she didn't have her own laptop. I gave her 14 grand, changed her whole life. So it's okay to be the one who digs for oil. It's the, yeah. it's okay to be the, the fisherman, depending on the, yeah. your skill sets and where you are. And but timely. you want to become a bear. <laughs> but you want to become the bear. You want to become yeah. the business person. Right? You know what this so reminds me of too? You want to stay there. Exactly. Right? You know what this reminds me of too? I, I have another business that um, I launched last year and it's in kind of in, in the insurance world. It's been going absolutely gangbusters. Like I've been hiring people. We're just, you know, people are coming in like crazy. Our close ratio is like 60%. And somebody was like, whoa, what in the world? Like, how are you getting all these people? And, think, and I go, we're, we're not actually doing it. What we did is we created a market and then the people came to us. And so I'm like, I don't want to go out and find somebody and try to sell to them. Like you're yeah. doing, you create a market and people come to you. And yeah. then all the deals, the cash, the leads, everything comes into this market that you create because you know, people know, first of all, like, you know, Warren Buffett, you're going to hold to your promise. They're going to yeah. get paid. They're going to make money. And two, you're not going to screw them. It's a good deal for them. And so people are happy to go to you. They know yep. you're not going to get drugged through the, through the mud. So you create a market for all these people to go, and it's a trusted market, and everybody's getting paid. It's an, and there's it's, a lot of value lot in of value. trust, right? Absolutely. I mean, they can go somewhere else, maybe get more money for it, or maybe get a bigger fee, or, or but guess what? Are they going to close? I don't know if they're going to close. Are they going to screw me? I don't know. If they, I, like, like, there's a lot of these question lot. marks. Because that happens all the time to them. It's a big deal. Dude, that is just awesome. This, you know, this is a perfect example. Like we were talking a little bit about before, and this is kind of what I wanted you to talk about next. The difference of scaling, the difference of buying an investment property and having an investment business and running a business and scaling real estate. So how was that? How did you, how did you go through that transition to where instead of just buying a few properties, whatnot, you created a market that people would come to you and you could scale, you know, to... You'll be to a billion dollars. I'm sure you will because you've got all the right pieces. You know, how, how, how do you do that? How have you gone through that? Dude, I remember this question consuming me for like four years of my life. When I first moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm at now, in like late 2012 to like, how does this happen? Like, how do I don't understand how people grow a business because I was a solopreneur. I'm doing everything. I'm sourcing deals. I'm sourcing money. I'm managing properties. I'm overseeing project management. I'm overseeing property management. I'm collecting rents. I'm doing bookkeeping, right? Yeah. Like I'm trying to do everything, just burning the candle at both ends. And I'm like, how, how do you build it? I don't even know what the first step is. And I go out to a mastermind and uh, it was in February, 2015. And I go to this, this event and I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just consumed. It's one of those things, dude, you cannot see the picture when you're in the frame. You know, I couldn't see what I was going through. I needed somebody from an outside perspective to come in and say, 
dude, here's what you need to do. And one of the guys there is like, dude, you just need to hire an assistant. I was like, it's gotta be more than that. Right. And they're like, no, just hire an assistant. I was like, well, you know, and all of a sudden the negative side, all that yeah. stuff comes at the fear side. Uh, how much is that going to cost me? Like I, I made six figures for the first time last year. I, I don't know if I can afford an assistant. It's 35, 40 grand a year. They're like, yeah. dude, it's like three grand a month. If it doesn't work for 60 days, can you afford to lose six cheese? I was like, yeah, I guess so. Dude, over the next 10 months, I made $400,000 by hiring one person, right? Yep. And then, but then you got to be careful because a lot of people, think, and I went down this road, is, oh, there's a problem? Let's just staff it out, right? Let's hire yes. somebody for it. Yeah. Oh, another problem? Hire somebody else. Another problem? Hire some, and I didn't have good systems, good operations, yeah. good standard operating procedures in place. And so I overhired. And the number one reason most businesses go out of business is for lack of cash flow, which comes from having too much overhead from overhiring, right? And so uh, I had to scale back really, really quickly and um, just kind of got smart about it. How can I bring on people and not, not take on a lot of overhead? And so I started hiring interns, right? Like they're able to come and get the experience. I pay them hundred bucks a week, 200 bucks a week, maybe give them a free apartment or something. And I was able to hire interns. And then if I liked how they worked, then I could give them a full-time job, right? If I saw their work ethic. Uh, another thing that I started doing is I just started like fractionalized employees, meaning my bookkeeper. I found a bookkeeping service that I didn't have to hire an in-house bookkeeper. They were able to come in and I could pay a bookkeeper 300 bucks a month. It started out like 150 bucks a month initially. And then it gradually increased to three, four grand a month. And then at that time, I'm like, I could just bring somebody in-house. So I didn't have to take on all that overhead, but I still had good accounting and bookkeeping practices. And then it fell into like doing some joint venture deals. And so my buddy down in Georgia, South or Georgia and South Carolina brought me an apartment building. Hey, Tim, will you sign on the loan and help raise some money and do some of this? I was like, yeah, I could do that. And I got a percentage of the deal. I'm like, damn, I really like this part. Right. Yeah. And then I, then I started doing that locally here in Cleveland and brought on some people that I was co-wholesaling with and doing all this other stuff. And so when it came to a point that I built my portfolio up to around 1500 units or whatever. And um, I was approached by all these different education businesses and companies and saying, Hey, let's put a course together. And I, I always left a bad taste in my mouth. Although I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on all of it. Yeah. It always left a bad taste in my mouth. Cause it was always like run to the back of the room right now. And yeah. only, uh -huh. only four spots left, you know? Yep. And I never liked that, but I like the idea of training people on how to do this the right way. If instead of having some upsell, what if I could joint venture with people, right? What if I could educate yeah. them on how to be great operators and then I could partner, they need me, they need access to capital maybe, they yeah. need a balance sheet to sponsor their loans. Mm -hmm. And I need somebody who's willing to do the boots on the ground work, who's willing to go and source deals and operate those deals where then I can take all the administrative side off, the, off their plate. I can handle all that remotely for the most part. And I can sponsor loans, bring all the financing, bring all the cash. And guess what? They're able to get into a deal they couldn't have gotten into. I'm able to get into a deal that I couldn't have gotten into. And guess, and then we're able to do deals together. So that's kind of how I've built. I do a little bit of education. I don't do a lot of it, but I do um, a lot of social media stuff, just educating people, free social media type stuff. And then I, ha I have an event that we, we pop off four times a year that educates people on how to do that. And then if they want to partner up with me, great. If not, no, no worries. It's, that's cool too. But I get a lot of deal sourcing from that yeah. with educated people who know what the hell they're doing, right? And then there's other people in the room who are like, 
dude, I didn't realize how much work this was. I don't really want to do that much, but I have money or I have access to money. Let me go and just bring money to your deals. Now they can get into deals that they couldn't have gotten into. So again, man, it's one of these rising tides and so much value for everybody that I can stay in my lane, focus and get a quarter of a watermelon. I love it. Yeah, no, you're, and you're exactly right. That's the thing with education and stuff. And even with like cash flow to freedom what we're doing here and the podcast and my blog everything like that i'm simply trying to create markets the yep. more i can educate people the more they see opportunities the more opportunity i have to get in on that opportunity and yeah. it, it already happened i had a guy that listened to the podcast called me up and said dude my uncle has two acres prime you know right on this main street everything like that where it's trying to close right now on that deal. Um, and it'll be a 12, you know, $15 million development that'll have, you know, well, be worth well over $30 million. And I'm sitting here going, this is just from the podcast. And awesome. The I love that philosophy too, because it's, you know, the tide that rises all ships, like you're talking about, you're making a market here. That's good for everybody involved. And yep. that is always scalable. Yep. So, I mean, I mean, between that and then, uh, and then just surround yourself with a players. That's the other yes. thing that, that is key to scaling. If you don't have a players on your team, man, it's impossible. Cause then you, you have to maintain control and control and growth are work inversely. If you want a lot of control, you're not going to have growth. If you're willing to give up control, you will have growth. And the only way you can give up control is if you have a players on your team, got to have a bunch of studs on your team. So my COO either makes you or breaks you. Acquisitions guy, A player, chief investment officer, A player, like all these people on my team, A players. And I can then go, I was in Spain for my brother's wedding. He moved out to Spain then. And uh, I was out for his wedding for an entire month earlier part of this year. Guess what? I checked my email every two days for about 30 minutes. And that was the extent of it. And it was mostly just deleting stuff to make sure I didn't stockpile yeah. over the course of the month. Yeah. Right. Everything was handled. And we bought, I think we bought about 250 or 300 units during that 30 day period when I was gone. So, yeah. You know, I think we've well, got two apartment buildings, a 24 you're on the side. So, you, you, okay, the thing is, you've talked about, um, you know, we, we have our four, four pillars at, at Cashflow Freeman. What you just described is the final one. After you, it comes right after developing a scalable process. So we, we talk about, you know, getting your, getting, capitalizing yourself into a good position, getting rid of bad debt, things like that, right? Creating multiple streams of income, then creating a scalable process. And your journey is straight through this. The last yeah. thing you do, is separate your time and your income. So w- the the separation of that time and income is about building an infrastructure and an organization that can operate without you. And a lot of people have fear of doing that. They're like, well, if it, if it doesn't need me, then I either have no value or maybe I'll lose it or something like that. And it's, it's yeah, the exact opposite. Somebody's going to rip me off. They're going to yes. me out or something. Yep. And that's, that's holding them back. Dude, the reality is... Like, like my COO could go and start his own company mm-hmm. like tomorrow, but guess what? There's some people who just don't want to be a friggin' entrepreneur and yeah. have that responsibility. Yeah. He's willing to work 16 hours a day, but guess what? He doesn't want the risk. He doesn't want the liability. He doesn't want the headaches. He doesn't want like, yeah, there's other things that I bring value. I can go raise money yeah. easier than he can. He can handle operations in a way that I don't want to. Right. And so we're very, very good. He understands that. He gets yeah. it. He understands the long-term vision. Well, too, so I think it, it's, yeah. you know, the New York Times just came up with uh, an article. I'll actually have to find that and send it to you. And it was about the, 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 it was like behind the door of the entrepreneur or the unseen 
entrepreneur, and it talked about how like suicide rates are extremely high and depression is just like almost mandatory and anxiety and all these like mental problems that come with entrepreneurship that they're like, nobody wants to talk about this. And it's like, and for entrepreneurship, it's an extreme world where you either make it or you're thinking about suicide. It's like, they're like, it's no in between here. And nobody wants to talk about this gap because you're either a rock star entrepreneur, superstar in our capitalist society, or you're a failure and you hate yourself. And that's a lot of people are like, listen, that I just don't want to live my life like that, which is yeah. understandable. <laughs> so totally understandable. Yeah. Dude, I don't, like, but that doesn't mean they're not skilled. They're not like top A level players and providing a system in which those people can come in, provide mass amount of value while you take away all those problems. Like, you know, yeah. I bring in th- these employees that are going out, these salespeople, everything else like that. They don't got to w- worry about making payroll. They don't got to worry about all the debt that they have on their head. They, you know, on and on and on. That Somebody they, slips they and falls and, and sues yeah. you. Like you're the one getting sued, exactly. not the employee. So exactly, there, there's a lot of that stuff, man, that, that comes into it. And I don't think people realize. Not a lot of people want to be the boss, right? Yeah. Not a lot of people yeah. want to be the entrepreneur. Yeah. And if you're able to hire somebody, the chances are they're not going to leave you. Yeah. No, I agree. We, you know, I believe when I bring everybody on, I, I bring on. I'm like, you know, first thing I say is, I'm not a micromanager, and I'm hiring you to do this job. And if I have to micromanage you, this job will end. And that's, we create an environment where I want people to not just thrive. They need to be untethered to where they can pull us moving forward. That's really important because I'm like, I don't have time to do it. I can't do everything. So you need to be exceptional. And I, you know, like get out there and get it done. I'm not going to come into your office and say, you know, what are you doing? No, go do it. Yep. And those, those kind of people like that. A players, yeah. that's what they want. They don't want me calling them, you know, saying, hey, you're 10 minutes late. Things, no, they don't want that. They want to be able to go do their thing and just excel. And so I think organizations that provide that environment will attract that higher talent and they will get superior results always. The A player will come in and rip the ball out of your hands and be like, I got this, right? Yep. Get out of the way, you know? Exactly. That's the kind of people that you want to build your organization around. And, um, and they're out there. I mean, it's hard to find them now because yeah. it's like, it's such a, you know, tight job market yeah. and unemployment's next to nothing. But, and, and they um, can basically dictate their pay too. a lot of those people. They can walk in. If they're revenue drivers, you know, in sales, you have a huge problem with that. If you want to yeah. go out and get an A player, they're like, I drive the revenue here. So, you know, and so it is, it's a tight labor market and it's hard. And that's why too, I think when you get the good ones, you've got to create that environment so they don't leave. Yep. Because most of those people, lifestyle is way more important than income. They're going, I want to be able to do my thing. I want to excel. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want you to help me build me up. Right. Um, but I don't want to be micromanaged. I don't want to do that. So I would take lesser pay to live that kind of lifestyle where I can personally grow and excel. And I, I just, yeah, I think that's, that's the way to go about it. And, and you're right. And the reason kind of, we've kind of gone off on this topic though, is it's absolutely essential in scaling, like the, to, to get to your level, to get to where we're at here, you have to give somebody the ball and release it because my time if I'm not making markets, there's nothing. Nothing yep. exists. 
Yep. And so the moment I get distracted from making a market and dealing with a tenant issue, like that is, that's bad. Like that's it's not good. It's not, not good for good. the team. It's not good for the whole business. It's not good for the organization as a whole. Like you yeah. need to stay in your lane, focus on that. They need to take care of that side of things because it's not healthy for, for growth. It's not healthy for operate. It's not healthy for any of it. So yeah, man, it's, it's a uh, having clearly defined organizational chart and then roles and responsibilities for every single one of those things. Yes. Um, and there's, there's human resources consultants that'll come out and sit down with you. And, and even if you don't have a big organization right now, you contact an HR consultant, have them sit down and say, Hey, here's the vision that I have. They'll plot it out on a, on a piece of paper. And then you can go and create roles and responsibilities and then hire that person for that box. You know, yeah, you're exactly um, right. If you don't have, if you're not there, so somebody may be sitting here going, I'm not even to that level. Well, if you're not planning to be that to that level, you're never going to be. When we had our first property, we already started to plan out the organization and how it will run based upon different markets that we may be in that we never even went to. But like we had a whole chart and things like that. We had 15 people that we were going to hire for jobs that didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to, I mean, you as the CEO, as the visionary of your company need to be looking multiple steps ahead, right? You got to be asking yourself questions that nobody else is asking themselves. Like you need to be working on the business instead of in In the the business, business, right? Love it. And, um, and that's, and that's like forward thinking, right? That's doing the things that real businesses do having core values. I, I used to think was just like, yeah, whatever. Like Google puts that on the, on the walls, just kind of track some, you know, goofy millennials or something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The reality is like you run your business from core values. Like that's how yep. you just dis- make decisions. That's how you hire people and making sure that uh, you get the right culture and everything like that is a big piece of the puzzle. Oh, um, it's huge. I mean, it, yeah, and having, having everything just like clearly defined yeah. and expectations set across the board. Like, and here's the thing, I'm not going to do that. Right. I'm yeah. not going to go out and do that physical work to, to put all that stuff together. Dude, staff it out, right? Yeah. That like one of the key things here is always think about the who to do the what or the who to yes. do the how, right? Yeah. It's not gonna be me. Yeah. I'm gonna be able to just go write a check because I need to focus on revenue generating yep. activities or um, raising money, finding yep. deals, which are the two most key things that you could be doing. Yep. The only two things that actually matter if you want to build a portfolio, right? Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. Okay, man, here, before we end up, I want to go on to one last thing. I want to talk about the future here. So I know one of the common response from our listeners and readers and everything else is they're very nervous and they're like, "Ah, I don't know if I should invest, things like that. They're very nervous about where the market's headed and they always ask, well, what are you doing? And my response is I'm buying properties that cash flow well and make sense. But what is your next five years look like? How are you preparing for potential downturns? What it do, does that affect your underwriting? Does that affect what markets you go into? Like how, how are you approaching this? Cause we're, what, yeah, we're I, 12 years out now. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, it's a real, it's a real thing. Markets yeah. are cyclical. We know it's going to yep. happen, Absolutely. but I'm not going to live in fear during yeah. that time frame. I'm just going to make sure that I'm, I'm stress testing the numbers on all my, num- on all my properties. And I'm doing things like, so, so here's how I mitigate risk. One, I always buy at a wholesale price. I will never buy at a retail price mm-hmm. and speculate and hope and pray that that values go up. I will never do that. Yep. I will always buy for cash flow and not for speculation. Okay. So if the numbers don't work from a cash flow management standpoint, I'm not just going to hope for appreciation. What is your target? 
What's that? Cash flow targets. Do you have them? What are you looking for? Uh, cash flow? I, I don't buy anything that doesn't yield at least a 10% cap rate at my, at my cost basis. Okay. I, I usually have 10, between 10 to 17% cap rate in A and B class areas of yeah. apartments. That's what, that's how basically what we should for too. Yeah. And so we, uh, um, we'll go in and then, and then again, we, we create appreciation versus hoping and praying and speculating for appreciation. So it's usually a value add. Uh, now I'm at a low enough basis where now it gives me options on what I can do with that property. Um, so I can sell it. I can refinance it at the basis. I can refinance it probably for more than what the basis is. So it allows me to then go out, refinance. Now I cash out my investors. The quicker I can turn over my investors, guess what? One, I can get them in more deals. But two, now there's, it's like going to the like casino and all your, all your chips are off the table. Now it's just house money in play. Not saying we're gambling, but yeah, you know, there's yeah. there's way less at risk if all your investors' money's off the table. Now I have long-term debt, non-recourse debt. I always put the longest amortization schedule possible on it, so I'll do 30 years out. And why? Because I want small payments. If I want to pay it down, I'll make an extra two payments a year, pay it down in 15 years. I can do that, but I don't want to have to do it if the market does shift. Does that make sense? That does. I'll also put out a term, meaning I'm usually in a 10 to 12 year term. I don't do five year. I don't do seven year. Um, and then when you get into 15 or 20 year terms, the interest rate jumps up. So that sweet spot for me is 10 to 12 years uh, whenever we refinance. And for, you know, my mindset there is if you bought in 06 at the peak and you went through the great recession, guess what? By 2016 values were back up and yeah. you paid down enough principal on it, where again, it gives you options. You yeah. want to refi, you want to sell, you want to um, be creative on the, on the exit strategy, however you want. Um, so I'm doing all those things. And then yes, when I'm, when I'm running the numbers, I'm stress testing the heck out of it. So if I can get a 75% LTV today, I'm running numbers with a 70% loan to value. Yeah. If I can get a 4.1% interest rate today, I'm running numbers at a 5% interest rate, 12, 18 months from now when I refinance it. Yeah. Um, if I'm uh if I can get rents between 750 to 800, I'm running rents at 750, not 800. And so there's a lot of things that would need to go wrong or go awry for me to, uh, to just hit the numbers that I'm putting on my pro forma. Yeah. And, and that's not likely. So it's more likely that maybe only one or two of those things will tighten up and my numbers will exceed the pro forma, right? Yeah. So we're, we're really stress testing it in a heavy way. Um, we don't try to uh, scale back renovations. Like that's one of the biggest mistakes I see investors do is like, yeah. oh, I could, I'll just scale back the renovation cost. Dude, no, that's a fixed cost, right? Yeah. The only thing that's variable in purchasing and renovating a property is the purchase price. Like yeah. that's what you need to scale back. Yeah. Not the renovation cost. Yep. And uh, I see a lot of investors trying to force deals. Yes. That's not my mindset. My mindset's to kill deals. If I cannot kill a deal, then I know it's a deal. Yep. Dude, it's like I'm speaking to me, except multifamily. <laughs> I love it. Seriously, your model's like identical to how we approach things. So that's, that's probably why I'm loving this so much. Um, and too, just because I've seen the success and I love you know, showing too that it's a model that works in all asset classes. Like what yep. we're discussing here this idea of buying wholesale, right? Fixing up and you're getting your price at today's, not futures, increases. Yep. Um, that that creates your moat, your margin of safety, right? That protects yep. you when you're down. Long-term finance, all this. It's it's a sure fire way 
to not just wealth, but to massive wealth. So yep. I love it. Well, man, where can people find you, learn more from you? They, I mean, this is just such good stuff. People, people need to get out there and, and listen to what you have to say. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. I'm, I'm pretty active on social media. Find me on Facebook. I put out a lot of free content there. Um, I, have a, I have a podcast too called Legacy Wealth Show. We talk more about um, apartments and then re- really like the balance of, not the balance, the harmony that you have in life of trying to make sure like what is real legacy? If, you're, yeah. if, you're, if that's your goal, yes. what does that look like? What does it look like for you, for your family? And um, maybe that's wealth. Maybe that's education, passing on education versus just yeah. treasure. Um, and uh Maybe that's just being present with your family and creating those memories. Like yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff that we get into on that. So um, awesome. yeah, connect with me on any, on any of those things. And then um, I do the commercial empire thing, which is my, my coaching thing, but um, like that's, that's strategies that work in both the, the, any kind of commercial real estate, but we really focus heavily on apartments. So yeah. um, I, you got, you got to come out, man. I got to have you out. I'll, I'll love uh, it. A VIP ticket. Dude, I'd love it. That'd be great, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well, hey, thank you again, dude, for your time and your mass information you shared with us. You really did open it up to everything to our readers, and I really, really appreciate that. That's a lot of I value. That you, you, man. Learned. Again, thank you for all the value you put out there and the changing lives. So, dude, big things come. Appreciate you. You too. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.